the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Arthur Idala Power Hour with quintessential New Yorker attorney Arthur Idala, New York's go-to lawyer. He's here to share his stories from in the courtroom and around the city with interviews from high-profile guests and everyday folks calling in to talk about everything from politics, lifestyle, health and wellness, and more. And now your host, making the case for the city he loves, attorney Arthur Idala. I take my hat off to New Yorkers through masks, through vaccines, through social distancing. Uh, you know, we were hit with a, the uncertainty, the fear of COVID. Uh, I'm just, I, I'm really proud of how we responded as New Yorkers. And every morning I meet with my health professionals because I always say that I'm going to follow the science. I'm not going to get ahead of the science because I'm ready to get ahead of all of this and get back to a level of normalcy. Uh, but they're giving us clear instructions. They gave us benchmarks. We're going to follow those benchmarks. Uh, but I look forward to the next few weeks uh, going to a real transformation that I don't have to wonder what you look like. I would know what you look like again. <laughs> And that was Mayor Eric Adams giving a vision, hopefully for the near future, where we see uh, some of these mandates in New York being lifted. I am not Arthur Idala. I am Imran Ansari, but I have the great, great honor of sitting in and guest hosting the Arthur Idala Power Hour. Some of you may know me or recognize my voice from the Thursday nights with Kevin McCullough, Radio Night Live, where I give the legal uh, news and I am the legal night uh, uh, contributor on the Kevin McCullough show. But this night, I get the honor of sitting in here and filling in for Arthur Idala, who is on vacation. Yesterday, I also filled in, and we were talking about how Eric Adams uh, has launched an initiative to clean up the subways, rid it of crime and also homelessness in order to get this city back on its feet. And this morning, uh, you just heard a clip of Mayor Adams at a press conference. This morning, he indicated, he sort of alluded uh, that he intends to roll back some of the mandates uh, that we have been living with here in the city uh, in order to get this pandemic under control. Uh, and that would be uh, some of the, uh, the the vaccine mandates or the vaccine mandate in order to enter uh, establishments like restaurants and also sporting uh, event arenas. Uh, and Eric Adams announced that this morning and it set, uh, you know, the city abuzz. People are optimistic. People are wondering when this will happen. Uh, but it is sort of a spotlight into his plan in getting the city back on its feet. Um, he also said uh, that, you know, he intends to get people back working in offices. And this morning he alluded to that also. Uh, and he said one thing that can't happen. You can't stay home in your pajamas all day. That is not who we are as a city. 
You need to be out cross-pollinating ideas, interacting with humans. It is crucial. We are social creatures, and we must socialize to get the energy that we need as a city. I 100% agree, and I really hope that we see some of these uh, mandates being rolled back as the city gets back to life and back on its feet. Um, and, you know, that's that's a cautious optimism here. And he has come in, uh, Mayor Adams, and I got to say, I got to give him support in his endeavors uh, to clean up the city, combat crime, uh, and get the city back on its feet. Um, and, you know, the, the mandates uh, itself have seen some legal challenges here, you know, uh, into uh, the Supreme Court. Um, percolating up in courts of appeals and lower courts. Uh, and I have a great guest tonight uh, to talk about some of the legalities of the challenges to the vaccine mandates and what SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, intends to do. Because we had news today uh, that um, the Supreme Court has declined to review an appeal um, out of Maine. However, Uh, We know last week they reversed course in a decision to review an appeal from a group of um, teachers here in New York uh, to appeal the vaccine mandate. And here with me to discuss all things SCOTUS, all things law, is the one and only Alan Dershowitz. He is a friend. He is a uh, mentor and he is a great legal mind and scholar, a legendary attorney. Alan, thank you for joining me tonight. Well, it's a pleasure. You know, people say all the time, who would Alan Dershowitz go to if he needed a lawyer? And the answer is very simple. I go to Imran, and you're my lawyer, uh, and I'm your client. And as far as I'm concerned, you are the greatest, and people should, God forbid anybody should get into any problems that need a lawyer. It'd be better to live life without lawyers. But if you need a lawyer, there's no one better than Imran and no one better than his firm uh, with Arthur Idala, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to be on with you, and congratulations on uh, having taking over the show from Arthur. Well, Alan, thank you for those, uh, the compliments that goes, you know, any attorney uh, getting a compliment like that from Alan Dershowitz uh, would have shivers up their spine, and I got to say that's the, the case for me right now, so thank you so much uh, for those kind sure. words, Alan. Uh, And now I get to pick your uh, legendary legal mind. When we talk about what's going on with SCOTUS and their decision to review or not review some of these challenges to the vaccine mandates. And I I just brought up that Eric Adams plans to roll back some of the mandates or or initiatives um, in the city. And we hope that's going to happen. But we want to do it safely, of course. We want this to be a safe endeavor. But can you just uh, give, you know, shed some light? A lot of people don't really understand uh, what happens when the Supreme Court either decides to review uh, an appeal or doesn't. And we hear that Maine, a, uh, an appeal coming from healthcare workers was, was declined by the Supreme Court, yet they have reversed their decision to review this, uh, this one coming out of New York uh, with the teachers. Uh, why is that? Yeah. Well, you know, I wrote a whole book on the subject called The Case for Vaccine Mandates, in which I predicted that the Supreme Court would duck issues, the ultimate issue, the ultimate issue, the hardest issue, the one that we hope we'll never, ever have to face, is can the government compel you to take a vaccine against your wishes? Uh, They did it in 1905, a smallpox vaccine, a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. But everything has changed in the last 117 years. So I could not predict to you what this Supreme Court would do or say in terms of that kind of an ultimate mandate. The mandates vary, of course, uh, mask mandates, 
conditional work mandates. Oh, you don't have to take a vaccine, but for the hospital, you do. If you want to be a first responder, you do. If you want to go on an airplane, you have to wear a mask. So the court is going to take these one at a time, and they're going to try desperately to avoid the ultimate issue. So far, what they've decided is, you know, mayors don't have the authority that legislatures do. Presidents don't have the authority that legislatures do. So what they've done is they've focused on the processes. And I think that's going to keep happening for a while. But ultimately, the Supreme Court may have to face the hard decision. And if they do, I think it's going to be very split and very divided. This court may very well not uphold uh, vaccine mandates under the current state of the science. Yeah, and Al, do you think that the uh, the news today with that challenge from healthcare workers out of Maine, uh, you know, a few weeks ago we saw the Supreme Court um, uh, uh, reverse or or uh, did not hold the law coming out of OSHA, which was uh, you know that mandate for certain employers to have their employees vaccinated. They didn't they didn't uphold that, but they did uphold the uh, the vaccine mandate required to healthcare workers, and they differentiated that from the one that uh, was uh, relegated that, or, or from exactly, OSHA. So, so is, exactly is that why Maine they would do? Yeah. Do you think <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yep. exactly what I said they would do? Uh, the president ordered the OSHA mandate based on a vague statute that didn't seem particularly applicable. And so the court struck that one down. But then the court said, look, hospitals are getting money from the federal government, like universities get money, and you can condition getting the money on having um, the employees vaccinated. So it's always going to be on a case-by-case basis, and uh, the court's going to try to avoid making very broad, very large decisions. Remember, too, that those two cases, the OSHA case and the hospital cases, were decided by two people. Um, That in the first vote, uh, the two people went one way, and the second vote, the two people went the other way. So the Supreme Court has nine justices, but only two of them seem to count these days because, you know, it's so predictable how three on one side will vote and how three or four on the other side will vote. So it's really up to the two. And, you know, uh, the New York City uh, vaccine mandate, the uh, the SCOTUS uh, originally declined. Well, Sotomayor had declined uh, to review it. And then right. they made a second pitch to Gorsuch, and he uh, has taken it on or bringing it to the court. Why do you think that uh, the New York case uh, was different than the main case and some of these other cases that SCOTUS has uh, declined to review? Well, it really depends on who made the decision and whether that person, mayor, governor, legislature, had authority to make that kind of decision. Look, there are three issues in, in any of these mandates. First is it the federal government or the state and city that have to make these decisions. And for things like communicable diseases, the federal government can make it. And the second question is who within the federal government can make it? And it's the legislature, not the president. And the third is let's assume the legislature makes it and it's within their authority. Is it constitutional? So this could be a whole course on constitutional law uh, based on, uh, on the mandates. I think that Mayor Adams is doing a great job. I'm a phenomenal fan of, of, of Mayor Adams. I think he is such a breath breath of fresh air. I think he's trying so hard to do the right thing. And uh, I think in general, I agree with him. I love the idea of trying to make the, you know, I grew up in the subways. I take three trains to go to high school. I went to Yeshiva High School right next to Ebbets Field, and I lived in Borough Park. Three trains. 
So I lived on the trains. My pocket was filled with tokens. Uh, and, and today, I'm afraid of the trains. And if he can clean up the trains, if he can create barriers so people can't be pushed onto the tracks, and if he could keep people safe on the subways, my God, he's right. the greatest mayor since Guardia. Yep. And, Alan, I always say the uh, subway is the uh, circulatory system, the nervous system of the city. And without a safe subway system, uh, you don't have New York City because that's, uh, you know, it's and incumbent it on that my, to have a safe city and my, people back at work. And it keeps my lawyer safe because every time I try to reach you in the morning, you're on the subway. True, and true. So but I always I wanna, return I your call very sure. expeditiously, Alan. So we're yeah, going to take a quick I, break. Only... Alan's going to be with us. And then when we come back, Alan, we're going to talk about the new news, the DA's office, the Trump inquiry. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Arthur Idala Power Hour. I am Imran Ansari. I'm filling in for Arthur uh, while he is away, uh, but he's going to be back. He's going to be back. So uh, have no fear. Arthur will be back, but you're going to have to deal with me right now. And I'm, uh, I, I'm going through some of the top news of the day. Uh, we talked about how Eric Adams uh, envisions lifting some of the mandates, but we also uh, have another big story coming out of New York. Uh, and that is that the two lead prosecutors at the Manhattan DA's office have resigned, and they were the ones who were in charge of the Trump investigation. And I'm talking about the investigation uh, that was into the Trump organization uh, that was ongoing. There was an indictment that was uh, handed down um, uh, previously, uh, and the ongoing investigation by the DA's office uh, was headed by these two prosecutors, and they have resigned today, and it really puts a question mark as to the future uh, of this investigation by the DA's office into the Trump organization. There were some question marks with it go into uh, investigations into Donald Trump himself or his family, uh, but here we have Carrie Dunn, ADA Carrie Dunn, or former ADA Carrie Dunn, and former ADA Mark Pomerantz giving their resignation, uh, and it follows... Um, the doubts that were expressed by the new district attorney here in New York County in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, he expressed some doubts about moving forward with the case against the former president. Um, and here we have the two, the resignation of these two lead prosecutors. And, you know, there is a prior indictment against uh, uh, Alan Weisselberg, 15 felony counts. Uh, and that was the uh, uh, against, you know, the Trump organization and its longtime uh, Chief Bookkeeper Alan Weisselberg. But what we have in store for the future is a big question mark. Let me bring in Alan Dershowitz, uh, famed defense attorney. He's seen his uh, fair share as a defense attorney of prosecutions that have gone forward and gone awry, I would imagine. Alan, what do you make of this new news now uh, that uh, these two prosecutors have resigned? Well, first of all, both of them are eminent and highly respected and we're obviously trying to do their job. My speculation, it's informed speculation, but it's only speculation, is that the newly elected district attorney said, I don't want to get into the past. I don't want to get into politics. I want to conduct my office. I want to stop mur murders and rapes and robberies. 
and uh, it will be uh, too much time, too much resources devoted to a political prosecution. Remember what's happening with Trump today is a variation of what Stalin told Leventi Beria back in the 1930s. He said, show me the man and I'll find you the crime. What happened is that Letitia James, uh, who I have very little respect for, ran for the attorney general's job on the promise, the campaign promise, that you would get Donald Trump. And so that's not the way prosecutors ought to operate. Prosecutors ought to see if crimes are committed against anybody, but they ought not to focus on a given person and say, let's find a crime against him. And I think that's what was going on in the DA's office. Um, that doesn't mean there weren't crimes. I don't know. But if I were the district attorney, I would have done the same thing. I think I would have said, let's look to the future. Uh, if Letitia James is doing this, let her do it. By the way, if I were Trump's lawyers, I would be moving for the recusal of Letitia James. No prosecutor should be allowed to investigate a case when she made a campaign promise that she would get the defendant and she will lose her next election if she fails to satisfy her campaign promise. So I think it's an illegitimate, an illegitimate investigation. Look, I defended Donald Trump, not on any of these charges, but on the unconstitutionality of his impeachment. I know nothing about these charges that have not been involved at all. But I smell a rat. I smell a rat because I think this is a case where they first identified the person to get, and then they looked for evidence that the person who they wanted to get uh, was guilty. Uh, in the Constitution, that's called the Bill of Attainder. Um, of course, that limits only legislatures. But the concept is you don't go after individuals and then find the crime. You go after individuals only after you have evidence that they have committed crimes, and that's not what's happening here. Right, and of course, Alan, uh, you know, I would be remiss not to mention that you, of course, uh, were Donald Trump's attorney and, and had that argument on the Senate floor uh, during the impeachment. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you're not involved in this, but you, you're, you're sort no. of hitting it. You're hitting it on the head in the sense that this differs quite drastically uh, meaning the DA here, uh, Alvin Bragg, uh, expressing some hesitation in going forward uh, with this investigation. It differs completely from what you're seeing up in Albany uh, with Letitia James, who, of course, uh, has the subpoenas on a civil matter uh, that uh, a New York Supreme Court uh, judge uh, has ruled that uh, the members of the Trump family will have to sit for a civil deposition. And, of course, there's a uh, collateral criminal investigation also by the AG's office, uh, which is ongoing. And of course, Trump's lawyers have uh, sought to fight back against those subpoenas that are compelling uh, the yeah. individual to sit for a deposition. But you see a drastic difference uh, down in Manhattan. Um, if, in fact, that uh, Alvin Bragg is, is deciding not to go forward with these uh, investigations yeah. from Letitia James. Um, and yeah, no, I see yeah. a big difference. Yeah, I see a big difference. And, you know, the, I think the DA's office in Manhattan has a lot of credibility, you know, starting from Hogan to Morgenthau uh, and more recent DA's. They have a lot. The attorney general's office, on the other hand, doesn't have that kind of credibility. And uh, Letitia James doesn't have that kind of credibility. And if I were one of the uh, people who got a subpoena, I would fight it. I would fight it. I would challenge the uh, jurisdiction of the attorney general. I would move to recuse the attorney general and have a special prosecutor. I think the governor should appoint a special prosecutor who is not running for reelection, who is not 
running for governor, as she tried to do, and doesn't have to fulfill a campaign pledge. A prosecutor should never be fulfilling campaign pledges. Yeah, no, Alan, I mean, it's a real dangerous uh, danger and a slippery slope, if you will, um, if prosecutorial agencies uh, take it on a political agenda with the, the cases that they're choosing to prosecute. There really needs to be uh, a separation uh, between um, politics. And, of course, uh, the DA's office, the AG's office, they're political offices. You can't uh, deny sure. that. But the, their investigations, prosecutions— uh, cannot be politically motivated. If that happens, um, you're really running afoul of the the basic tenets of our justice system. Uh, and I think that there needs to be a check on that. Would you agree? I agree. Look, Bob Bordevel was a close friend of mine. I mourn his passing every day. Um, he tried very hard to depoliticize uh, the office. I remember, he's the one who confessed error uh, on the Central Park uh, people. Uh, he has always tried to uh, depoliticize the office, and I, I hope that his successor, twice removed, Bragg, will do the same thing and will look to Morgenthau uh, and Hogan as a kind of uh, mentors and people to be emulated. Yeah, no, absolutely, Alan. I fully agree. And, you know, uh, I'm going to shift gears here. Um, of course, this is a truncated show. Normally, the Arthur Idala Power Hour is an hour long, uh, but we're going to be bringing uh, some college basketball excitement to you uh, at the uh, the halfway mark at 6:30. But Alan, before you go, I want to ask you: um, You're a Harvard Law professor. Uh, you uh, had a long uh, tenured career there, and there's another Harvard Law professor right now uh, making some news, and that is Lawrence Tribe, uh, and he went on Twitter. Alan, and um, accused Tucker Carlson uh, of treason or said he could be guilty of treason. Um, what do you, what's your take on that tweet? Because I know he's getting some backlash. It's, it's typical of Tribe. Tribe is not a constitutional expert. He is a constitutional manipulator. The Constitution is always twisted and distorted by Tribe to come out according to his politics, his ideology, and his personal preferences, the idea that by expressing a view different from that of the president, both Tribe and I were against the Iraq war, we were against the Vietnam war, were we guilty of treason? It's so absurd. Tribe finally, finally apologized, took down the tweet, took down the tweet about the tweet and said, I didn't mean it literally. Of course he meant it literally. He said, they're guilty of treason under the language of Article 3 of the Constitution. What could be more literal than that? And so, you know, what he did was uh, was scandalous and wrong. And even though he was my colleague for almost 50 years and my friend for some of that, I have to criticize him most seriously because we must preserve our First Amendment right to criticize the government, including governmental decisions to go to war. Treason does not apply to constitutionally protected free speech. Yeah. And, Alan, I also want to get your quick take. Uh, we're talking about you brought up the First Amendment, and it, it brought uh, to mind the recent uh, jury verdict in the Sarah Palin case. I just want to yeah. get your take. You know, they, uh, Sarah Palin has indicated she's going to appeal uh, that I verdict. So. You yeah. know, of yeah. course, there's, there's some aspect, you know, whether the judge uh, and, and his comments had some effect on the jury. That's a real question, which is going to be raised on appeal. Yeah. But what is your thoughts um, about – uh, the chance of New York Times versus Sullivan um, somehow being uh, attacked, if you will, on appeal. 
I think it's going to be attacked, and I think it's going to be successfully attacked. I was one of the law clerks who worked on the New York Times versus Sullivan, but I think it made a terrible mistake uh, not distinguishing between governmental figures, elected officials, presidents, appointed officials. They should have to prove malice, but they define public figures much too broadly uh, to include journalists and yeah. uh, people like that or to include people like me and you. We're public figures. So I think the Supreme Court will eventually, uh, in your lifetime, maybe not in mine, uh, limit uh, New York Times versus Sullivan to yeah. elected or appointed public officials. Alan Dershowitz, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for listening to the Arthur Idala Power Hour, our Power Half Hour uh, tonight. We got college basketball up next on AM 970, The Answer. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.